Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. What happened is we entered this town to do a tribal leader engagement to try to suss out the enemy, and we got blown up by a car bomb. We're visiting today with Major Fred Galvin, author of A Few Bad Men. Major Galvin and his team fought for their lives after an ambush in a remote village in Afghanistan, only to learn that their most difficult battle would be against the betrayal of their military leadership. Charged with war crimes for their fight to survive, they proved their innocence in court, and now Major Galvin fights to ensure other sons and daughters of America do not face the same unfair and unconstitutional treatment they were forced to endure. Be sure to order a few bad men and learn more about their story. Now let's go talk with Major Galvin. Uh, good morning. It's great to see everyone. Good to be together again and excited to spend time this morning with Major Fred Galvin, whose book just came out this week, A Few Bad Men. Just got it two days ago. I'm halfway through it probably. Haven't finished. I hope to finish before today. But so now you're going to have to ruin the suspense and tell me how it all. But you're here. So we know part of how it ends. Uh, but good morning. It's good to see you. It's great to see you all. Thanks for having me. It's um, awesome that you've been able to take your experiences and capture in the, that in the book. And I want to talk about that process too, just uh, later as we get into your story. But why don't you take us way back, early Fred Galvin journey, and who inspired you to think about going to the Marines and a life of service? Is that something you knew early on you were going to spend your career in the Marines or did that just evolve that, that life of service evolve and who were some of your early inspirations that led you down that path? Our family, you know, grew up in Kansas City metro area and then our uh, family was able to go out and have this, uh, early American battlefield tour, uh, both in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War battlefields. And that occurred when I was 10 years old. It was very instrumental in changing my life and understanding how, you know, those early settlers, you know, wanted freedom and they were being oppressed. And then this also happened again in the Civil War. And that's something that uh, Americans, it's, it's in our culture to to not have oppression from another government or internally. And, uh, you know, we fought twice for that, once against the British Empire, once against ourselves, so that no Americans would be oppressed. And that hit a central theme in myself that I saw that sacrifice from uh, the winter encampment at Valley Forge all the way through several of those revolutionary and Civil War battlefields. That sacrifice was amazing. And, and being there from... The heartland, a lot of that is not as accentuated as, as it is on some of those East Coast uh, and uh, Southern battlefields that uh, we were able to visit. And just at, at 10 years old, that shocked me. And I just wanted to somehow be a part of that. And it wasn't until, you know, I was a senior in uh, high school at uh, Rockers High School that one of my uh, classmates was telling me, you know, he'd already signed up for the Marine Corps. And that was kind of uncommon at, at Rockers. Most people go straight to college. Uh, but that's, I did want to serve. And, you know, he was the one that led me into, oh, you got to join the Marine Corps. Uh, so right after high school, I, I entered the service in the Marine Corps. And that's what uh, began my journey. So you had a pretty extensive career before Afghanistan. Talk about some of the lessons along there, your early Marine journey, and who you surely to have stayed in, you encountered some good leadership along the way and folks that inspired you and showed you what leadership looked like and what you wanted to be. Yes, there's good and bad lessons uh, and mostly positive. Uh, when I was a young Marine, um, I thought, you know, this was just an incredible experience that uh, you're with some other like-minded people that are, you know, really eager to, to work and it's exciting. I enjoyed it. Uh, we didn't have some of this division that we have right now in the military. And uh, for full disclosure, I'm going to advance really quickly, but I just finished uh, six weeks ago a four-year stint as a government civilian at Camp Smith in Hawaii. So uh, I did have a little 
revisitation uh, of of the military. But uh, going back, I didn't see, you know, in those early years, what I'm seeing right now, where I'm seeing so many people want to exit the service, not because uh, it's time to go or their body's hurting or they got a better job. It's a totally different situation now than it was 30, 35 years ago. And, and that is important for Americans to understand. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that subject, but we're seeing right now the situation go on in Eastern Europe there with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there's, there's a chasm between you know, their generals and those frontline foot soldiers that uh, I would submit is not because of, I mean, Russia has larger numbers, technologically they're more advanced, but there's an issue there called morale. And that is something that right now, America, we need to pay attention to that. If it could be whenever, but we're seeing a lot of amphibious rehearsals go on in the east coast of China. That is for a very specific purpose. And we're going to get dragged into war via a treaty that we will not have a choice over. And we have to have competent commanders. We have to have military that's ready and effective. And we have to have military with high morale. So. Uh, with that being said, I want to go back to those early years. We didn't have the divisiveness that we have right now. That uh, back then it was a simpler, uh, it was a great time. And we went to Desert Storm. I was with the, the Regimental Landing Team 5 out of the uh, 5th Marine Infantry Regiment uh, from Camp Pendleton, California. We embarked upon ships and uh, Went into Saudi Arabia, into Kuwait, limited combat. Uh, as everyone knows, it was it was overwhelming shock and awe that you know really for the whole world to see that you know wow America within four days just trumped uh, the third largest military in the world, and uh, militaries around the globe have been studying that for decades and uh, trying to rival that power. Uh, which is now being realized in uh, in some other countries. So uh, after that time, I had uh, I had taken an indoc to go to uh, reconnaissance. Uh, a friend of mine there in Kansas City, uh, who still lives there, and uh, and I ran into him on the base in Camp Pendleton. Uh, spent some time with him and his friends, his colleagues there at uh, First Recon Battalion, and. You know, that really led me, I, I wanted, that put the seed in me that I wanted to get into the reconnaissance field. Took the reconnaissance indoctrination and our company executive officer thought I was being disloyal and trying to get out of the deployment and uh, kind of earned a bad reputation for doing what my platoon enlisted leadership had allowed me to, to do and go take this indoctrination. But, uh, so I was not able to do that, and that ended up leading me to uh, going off to college. I stayed out there in California and uh, went to college, finished as soon as I could, and then became a stockbroker uh, for two different firms for two years, uh, which did lead me back to Kansas City, uh, where I worked at Smith Barney. And uh, my heart was still in the, to join, to rejoin the Marine Corps, and that's what I did. Uh, going uh to get my commission in 1995 and uh spent that year in training as a young officer infantry officer and then led me back out to camp pendleton california once again um and my first tour as a platoon leader we call it in the marines a platoon commander and then uh, off after that started uh my career in the force reconnaissance which prior to the 2006 activation of the Marine Special Operations Command, the elite unit, in the most elite unit in the Marine Corps was these uh, three units called Force Reconnaissance we had in, in California, North Carolina, and in Okinawa, Japan. So, and I was able to serve in all three of those prior to the activation of Marine Special Operations Command. What was the qualification process for that that you you went through for uh, Marine Special Operations? Uh, very, very interesting. So force reconnaissance and 
in most units have this assessment and selection, um, whether it's the Army Special Forces, maybe Special Warfare, uh, now Marine Raiders, various links. Um, but, but back then, it was a very simplified process. And one of those main th things is they want to make sure you had the mental, physical, and moral aptitude uh, to, to, be, to be qualified to initially start your training. So uh, much like uh, you know, Army Special Forces, they have an assessment selection and they have a separate qualification course. So the Marine Corps has, a, has an indoc. And it's a it, that essentially is a is a one day gut check. And what I really like about that compared to how Marine Special Operations is now, and they they both have their goods and bads, but um, the prerequisite for in enforced reconnaissance when they put you through that indoctrination, that is that is simply like Olympic level hundred yard dash. It's not that. You know, you have to show over three, four, five, ten years that you have, you know, what that metric is and how well you are. But it's it's that less than ten second race to really show the world what you have, and uh, so it takes that initiative prior to that that's on your own. Uh, now, I think, uh, you know, I, I saw the this evolution in marine special operations where they would send you a dvd and now you can go onto a website now it's an app and it explains everything that you need to do so a lot of that initiative is taken away uh, prior um, you know there's there's good and there's bad about it but prior there was just a phone number in the base newspaper and you called they gave you a gear list and a time and a place to show up and it was those years before, uh, and it usually, I mean, takes a physically fit, you know, Marine from the infantry, uh, because that's what you had to, in the past, come from is the infantry. And, but you had to spend those at least two years spending about three hours a day just in an intense physical regimen on top of everything else you're doing, just to be able to pass that indoctrination. So you usually start, and they did it every month about 25 Marines and you'd end up with probably about three that would pass, maybe one or two that would eventually make it over. And essentially what that scope of battery of physical and mental things that they're doing still has non-disclosure on it is to ensure that a little, all of the courses that you're going to go in rapid succession from, um, amphibious reconnaissance course to basic airborne to ranger course to uh, marine combatant dive course that you have so all those entry tests for each of those schools a portion of that is in that one day and uh, you're just going from one event to the next to make sure that you are physically and mentally prepared because they're just after that they're just going to send you from one school to the next so I, but i thought that was very thorough it was very complete uh, it was based on standards for courses that you were going to attend in, in rapid succession immediately thereafter so um, i like that versus uh having all the time in in the roadmap you know with a 10-digit grid so that you know exactly where you're going i think it's better when the individual has to show their own initiative and that element of surprise because in combat, you know, that mental unknown is is something that you're always going to have to deal with when it's always provided, when every axiom and every thing is given on the exam to you and you just, oh, I've, I've understood and I've prepared for this. That's, in my mind, for that uncertainty of combat, I don't think that's a good preparation because you're always going to have to deal with unknowns. and a leader has to be able to manage and compartmentalize fear and uncertainty and lack of resources and, and adversity. And so um, I think early on in that initial training, in my opinion, that is a, that is a good gauge to include in a, in a screening. And that's how still right now they have 
the reconnaissance and force reconnaissance uh, units in the Marine Corps, as well as Marine Special Operations. And then they test, uh, their tests are slightly different. You know, you've hit on some really big concepts there. You've said initiative several times. So I know that's important preparedness, discipline, and some self discipline. Uh, and I think that ties into something Drew's bringing up here. If it, maybe Drew wants to talk about some comparisons to Army and current preparedness. Yeah, I just, uh, Fred, uh, love listening to you. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You were talking about out in, uh, you were out in Hawaii. My son is out there right now as a second lieutenant. Um, interesting side note to that is, uh, as I said to him, um, it's very different. I think when we were younger, um, it was almost, as you said, it was almost, um, it was almost re required for you to have a little bit of initiative in things. In fact, my commanders used to, used to, um, in, enjoy messing with me as a young second lieutenant because I was never afraid to do too much. Uh, it was the other way around as opposed to the lieutenant you had to kick in the ass to move. Uh, I was, me and a couple of those, th those guys were always the ones that seemed to be out there uh, more, more or less causing dysfunction at times because we were trying to learn, we're trying to do more. Uh, add to that the professional development, the balances that you need to have between fitness uh, and that history that is so important to establishing the esprit de corps in your organizations. I just don't see it. My son doesn't see it. Um, being a former commander's son, he says the same thing. You know, Dad, I don't feel the same thing. Uh, uh, I don't see it from above this love and attraction towards the wolfhounds and things like that. And I reminded him that whose fault is that is other than your own. Lead up. Stop your whining get up, dust yourself off. Don't be afraid to pull out all those things that you learn as a young kid uh, and teach your young, teach your company commander how to do the leadership by, um, you know, leading up front, not being afraid to talk about the history, be that spring, but the one who's not, who knows everything about the organizational history. I think those are the things that we're seeing in the, at least I, he is seeing, and I'm seeing through his eyes. Is that really where you're talking is that the same thing that's going on in the Marine Corps where they're so bent on having every standard written out so that they don't deviate or cause any kind of social media outcry? Is that what you're, is that what you're seeing as well? Yes, Drew, and that has accelerated this evolution where and there's, there's good and bad. Uh, now, I know in the, when I was a young uh, captain, they sent me on a tour. My... Uh, my only op non-operational tour was out in Yuma, Arizona. The Marines have their version of a top gun school out there. So it's not just air to air, it's air to air and air to ground. And so I was an instructor for the ground side, uh, doing the infantry maneuver and controlling the close air support. There is where I learned uh, because the aviators on the Marine side started this uh, training and readiness manual. So everything had a metric. There was a, uh, task a condition that you would do it in in a standard uh and that standard standard has specified metric on it that's that's very good but then it started this you know systems approach to training everything was very linear and you had to follow this trail that you really couldn't deviate from there was timelines and this block training approach there's good and there's bad to that but as you were saying drew it does take away a lot of this initiative, like, hey, wait, we're going to do this. Don't steer off this. And then I believe that has led to this creation of uh, risk management that is so overwhelming that you don't want to step outside of the lane. And what you had described in your early career, as I also saw in mine, was this entrepreneurial that, hey, I want to uh, be able to take risk. I can, I have the, the unit that I'm in charge of, and I'm going to train them to the best of my ability. Not everything is specified in a training and readiness manual that has, and, and there's goodness to that because you always have some people that won't take any initiative, uh, but it also limits those leaders that, that they understand where they're going to go and they want to, I'm not going to make some corny uh, comparison, 
but if any of you, probably some of you have seen that new movie, Top Gun Maverick, uh, is that kind of mindset, whether you're an aviator or you're someone on the ground that, that sees the vision where you really truly need to go and how you need to train that force. And you're not going to be limited by, you know, some NATOPS aviation manual or what somebody wrote that is, you know, prescribing it to a certain uh, standard based on capabilities and limitations of aircraft or a known force. Uh, there's times to, from time to time, we're going to have to deviate from that. And I think a lot of these standards are very rigid. Um, and I think that should be a, a model to uh, base, you know, as a starting point, that should not be the ceiling. Uh, but now everything's based on risk mitigation. And one thing I would say to you, Drew, you know, your son has, a, and, and I saw this, two, two comments. Other people can easily look, and I've seen, I'm, I just left the military again as a civilian. I saw this where if you stray from this, you're kind of looked at as like, whoa, um, why are you taking that risk? That's where in the past that was normal. You you were allowed a, a wide box to operate in. Now it's like, why are you outside of this very narrow parameter? Uh, that's that's not good. We don't do that. And then if you have success, it's what I am seeing currently is a lot of people will look at a leader who is stepping up and taking that initiative in they see that leader eclipse their peers and maybe even a superior because a, a young go-getter, a second lieutenant could be out there just, you know, really getting after it. And people all of a sudden, you know, are jealous and they start undermining and shelling that lieutenant and saying, Hey, you know, and then I saw that when I was a young lieutenant, I had captains that were, you know, in the operations section, like, you know, Lieutenant Galvin, he's out there. He's always got his Marines out there and, why is he doing that? And but that's exactly what you you expect uh, your young lieutenants and captains to be doing is to be out experimenting, training you know their force, uh, learning through trial and error. You know uh, there has to be a you know parameter where leaders can learn and have controlled failures. Uh, but in today's you know we talk about not having a zero defects mentality. We do have just that. And I was talking with a gentleman yesterday, uh, a peer of mine who retired recently from the Marines. Um, and he, he was giving an example of one of his friends that, uh, you know, without any type of warning, you know, was just relieved of command, um, basically on perception and nothing that's documented or nothing that he could even be counseled on. It's just, and that type of, you know, that what that causes is people to go back on their heels and you know conform so that's the 360 assessment that's that you're talking yes. about in the army at least i don't know what it's called you know and just to put some context you know we learned and mike i'm sure you'll say the same thing we learned in the 80s during the cold war that the russian military in training and then oh by the way in combat will follow things scripted down to I mean, they will not deviate from that script. And we've always been the kind of military that's been, well, we have these manuals, but we don't follow them. Um, and then when you go back to you train how you, how you fight, um, I will refer to the LGOPs, the little group of paratroopers. Um, you know, we just came off of Normandy. If you understand th that all of these troops going in and jumping out of planes it wasn't that they were going to ever maintain unit integrity. In fact, they almost expected not to, but you just form up with who you land close to and you form these little group of paratroopers who go out and wreak havoc and chaos on the enemy. So that's the, that's the training. How do you develop a training methodology that instills, instills the kind of things that Fred's talking about? And I think that's the, that's the challenge even you face in the business world is you want people who are not afraid to show initiative to make things better, whether it's manufacturing or whatever it is, to make things better, more efficient. Um, and that takes an incredible amount of leadership 
that builds trust in people that you're not going to, like Fred said, sledgehammer somebody because they deviate from the norm. In the force reconnaissance, we'd had uh, our tactics for a close quarter battle were the uh, termed initiative-based tactics because when you enter a, a compound, a house that has insurgents and leaders and these people are radicalized, they're, they're trained to kill you, um, you know, a standard tactic that, you know, okay, you will always follow this. Uh, it's not going to succeed. You have to, based on what's going on, it has to be very fluid and it has to be, you know, with clear commander's intent, this is what the objective is. And I just remember, you know, as a force reconnaissance platoon commander, and I, I like I mentioned, I was in three different units and spent a long time there, but you have to always learn and evolve and modify those tactics because the enemy's changing theirs. Uh, but there has to be that bias for action. And I think a lot of this rigidity that uh, is instilled through uh, doctrine, you know, it's, it's funny how a lot of other forces around the globe that we've been at war with over the, you know, existence of our nation have always said, you know, the Americans, we could beat them if they would follow some type of a doctrine uh, in that type of ingenuity. Some people, you know, our, our adversaries look at it as, you know, we are fairly chaotic. Uh, and when we simply conform to like, hey, this is how we're always going to be, it's, it's very easy to predict what a unit will do uh, the majority of the time and uh, encounter that. But uh, it's, it's very effective when there's a lot of uncertainty because other forces don't train with that chaos mentality that, you know, just like that uh, German blitzkrieg, you know, it's just shock and you don't know. It's, it seems overwhelming when you, when you have that shock and that really creates a demoralization of the, your opponent. And it's, it's easy to defeat them once uh, it seems inevitable that they're going to uh, be destroyed. Let's take some of these lessons of risk management and how that spilled over into the rules of engagement in the environment that you found yourself in in 2007. I think some of the stuff you captured in the book probably would surprise people that haven't read much from that genre, you know, that your processes require you when someone's hurtling at you with a car bomb to throw a rock or a water bottle, you know, which seems fairly ineffective. Uh, talk about just some of the frustrations of what take you into this environment where you're about to be ambushed. Yes. Uh, very good point. So prior to that, the units that I served in, um, we were conducting operations over in Iraq and, uh, there was this rotation that we were on six months over in Iraq and six months back in the States. And the, the tactics were very different. Um, and then when we go into Afghanistan, so the, the early portions of, you know, from October, 2001, when we first had boots on the ground and until about 2005, uh, we had run America had runaway success over there in defeating the Taliban. It was, uh, through a lot of shock and all, a lot of special operations, special forces units that were, you know, just allowed to do what they needed to do, uh, that did push a lot of those fighters over into, you know, places to the north and as well as Pakistan. And they did have a resurgency. Uh, they started to have camps where they would uh, radicalize those foreign fighters, and they were studying our tactics, and then. In 2006, they, you know, got reorganized and started uh, another offensive against uh, the coalition forces in uh, Afghanistan. And that's right at the time when we went from the our prior existing American rules of engagements to these NATO rules of engagement and the introduction of the counterinsurgency manual. And I know a lot of people think, you know, hey, this is a, you know, we just needed more time. I mean, we spent 20 years. And I would submit that anybody who's a huge fan of counterinsurgency 
and if they feel it was successful, um, maybe they could send their bride to a bed and breakfast in Bagram and see how much skin in the game they've put into that uh, right now. Uh, but the uh, that that whole falling in love with this counterinsurgency philosophy led to like as General Mattis coined, you know, he, he adopted this you know, Hippocratic oath or phrase from it first do no harm and you put that in the minds of everyone of course you know it's just like uh most americans aren't going to want to destroy their environment they're not going they we've learned some things we're not going to dump your oil in a in a river in the missouri river um of course we don't want to just go out there and, and there's always going to be some people that are there's some bad apples however uh, these awards that they had this sounds almost like it's an embellishment and it's not and mike and others you know they they would have these awards for using restraint uh you know what type of incentives and signals are you sending when you are awarding people for doing little to nothing and you saw units start to hunker down on bases and of course you know when i don't even want to get into you know incentives for the war to drag on as long as it did and uh you know that was that was a shame that we kind of went to a standstill with a force uh you know re rebels essentially that are using weapons made two years after world war ii and homemade explosives and you know almost put, put us into a submission uh, that that didn't need to happen uh there's there's more effective ways but uh, so in 2007 we we went in and you know we knew we had to we couldn't uh, immediately action we had to develop basically a case so we 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 had intelligence that there was four suicide bombers we knew the exact building that they were living in they just came across the border in this town that be uh is the first town inside the afghanistan right next to the pakistan border called body cot and uh, so we went in there to do a tribal leader engagement because we couldn't just go and do what we had previously done in uh, like Iraq and and go seize these guys. You had to take your time and get get this case. It had to go up and get approved by literally the four star level to go get known bad guys. Uh, and that kind of you know, hey, let's look at this. And then when we start including ourselves in the decision making process, but uh, this huge coalition mainly formed you know, American forces, but a lot of European uh, have a different way of thinking that, uh, you know, hey, the benefit of the doubt, let's let's not just pick these guys up and detain them. That's a that's not so good. Well, what happened is we entered this town to do a tribal leader engagement to try to suss out the enemy and we got blown up by a car bomb. Um, and I, this is an assumption. I believe that ambush was intended for another unit that was um, preparing to leave the base that we had uh, left from earlier that morning. They were outside doing their rehearsals and emergency procedures for uh, their pre-combat inspections and checks. So we entered this town just before them. We got blown up. A vehicle came to uh, try to T-bone the vehicle that uh, had of ours that had just been blown up which was an ambulance vehicle it had visually recognizable different armor it had an open troop compartment in the back so it, it looked and it was likely known to be uh, less uh, protected and more vulnerable than the rest of the vehicles in the convoy which were all fully encased steel vehicles so that one was targeted by the car bomb and uh, the follow-on sports utility vehicle that had three jihadists that were hanging out the windows firing AK-47s fully automatic at us. And then, uh, so our gunners made quick work, took immediate initiative, and uh, without any hesitation, killed those that were shooting at us in that vehicle. The driver of that sports utility vehicle did bail out of the vehicle, survived, and was fighting from a ditch against us. Um, he, he survived and actually testified not to completely spoil it for you. <laughs> I won't say any more, but you'll see him in the book. 
uh, and that's this is a nonfiction book, so kind of uh, make sure you're not reading it close to your bedtime to kind of disturb your your sleep there. So um, on the right side, immediately after that uh, vehicle was destroyed, we had uh, a different uh, echelon. They had a maneuver formation, so somebody be providing suppressive fire while another would maneuver against us and they were bounding towards us in this dry riverbed. So we were on a road with had uh, some elevation gain above where their position was located. And uh, from that, our first two vehicles, uh, and this was at nine o'clock in the morning, so we had clear visibility. Uh, they made easy work of those echelons that were in the riverbed. We were still also being hit with sniper fire from a, a hilltop which we didn't shoot on the hilltop. We didn't have clear visibility of where that was, but uh, I'm gonna fast forward very quickly. But later after we returned, the steel from uh, that second vehicle was, was dismantled and taken to uh, Georgia where the army has a criminal investigator laboratory. It was analyzed by metallurgists. Um, I'm just a guy from Eastern Kansas there too, so maybe my pronunciation was wrong. Uh, so the uh, they analyzed it and said that the impacts were from Soviet Dragunov sniper rifle. And this is where um, you start to get in the book and start to see some of this corruption. And this is not some kind of embellishment. This is what an Air Force colonel that was appointed as the Article 15-6 investigating officer somehow, and as, as crazy as that sounds, you're, you're never going to have a, Army or Marine officer investigate an Air Force uh, mishap of any sort. Uh, it would it'd be very rare, but but he opined that we had either shot our own vehicles before we went out on the patrol. Uh, why any unit would try to intentionally shoot their own vehicles to include the the bullet impacts on our front windshields? Like, why would you try to? weaken the integrity of your armor or your glass knowing that you're going to go out into a, a high threat area and then he said well we the impacts on the sides of our vehicles because we came in in a column the impacts on the sides of our vehicle he said we're likely that we got spooked and shot ourselves so if we're in column the only way we're going to shoot ourselves with a 7.62 millimeter weapon would be to take off the pinnel mounted medium machine gun, hang it off the side of your vehicle during an ambush and start shooting the sides of your vehicle. Um, but this is what, you know, this is, again, this is not comedy or fiction or embellishment. This is what Colonel Pat Bahana, not opined, but he put into his Article 15-6 investigation that we got spooked and somehow we shot ourselves with 762 on the side later and i don't want to totally spoil it because you haven't gotten the back half of the book back half of the book is all of the courtroom trial that you didn't get to hear because during our trial the media was constantly escorted out of the courtroom during our defense and and also any witnesses that had exculpatory evidence so as i just described to you this was not Jason Bourne's knock list or nothing containing locations of satellites in orbit or submarines at sea. Nothing in here was needed to be classified. This was a gun battle. This was your, your garden variety of uh, ambush and counterattack. This was not something that, uh, and you cannot, the security classification guide says very clearly you can't classify something for the purpose of saving someone from embarrassment. Um, but from 7 to 29 January 2008, the longest trial in Marine Corps history, this trend of you know defense witness comes in or even just a character witness. Many, I had several character witnesses, none of which had even been in Afghanistan ever. None of them were eyewitnesses. They were just providing testimony. Go back and do a web search and find one of those character witnesses that's provided any testimony. You're, you're not going to. And th that's sad because when you take the media out, 
that's the voice to the American people. That's the American people need to know really what happened, especially if it's unclassified. Uh, the jury heard everything. The jury exonerated us, but the American people had this narrative that was just from the prosecution that followed me to, you know, back to Kansas City when I retired and couldn't get a job. I'd applied for 700 jobs. It made this appear that, you know, hey, these guys murdered, just like the prosecution said, they murdered all the 19. This was the largest number of alleged Afghan civilians killed by direct fire weapons, by machine guns and rifles. 19 wounded or 19 killed and 50 wounded in the war in Afghanistan. So when you have that hanging over your head and the media only media is going to do what they're there to do, they're going to record what they hear and and put out whatever they can, you know, decide from based on what they heard happened. Uh, they got one side of it. And that's why this book, A Few Bad Men, uh, describes what, while I was still in the service, I, I sent a request to Special Operations Command that did Article 15-6, and I sent one to the Marine Corps Central Command, uh, both these units down in Tampa. Um, I did that starting in 2011, and for 11 years, I fought having the lawyers and threatened to go to federal court to have this Freedom of Information Act from both these organizations, which is continually being denied. Uh, but then uh, the threats with lawyers to go to court uh, finally started to get some of this declassified and released, and that's what's in this book. So that last half of the book, there's no longer a story of Fred Gallon growing up in Kansas City, going to join the Marine Corps. It's strictly quotes is you're reading that are, the, you know, these aren't paraphrased. They're not, you know, a a short portion. It's, it's what was on the record and what you can see in uh, various, you know, whether it's the Marine Corps times or even more specifically that the, the uh, soft rep, Special Operations Forces Report, printed the equivalent of literally 220 Word document pages, which in many cases were just page after page of declassified courtroom transcripts. And when you see this, not to spoil it, you know, maybe to just to tease you a little bit, you're just seeing these senior officers fall on their swords under testimony. Of course, I believe some of these men knew that this was going to be, you know, there's there's no media in there. It's, they said it was classified. So I thought that they were probably thinking this is, they're going to be protected, that none of this is going to be seen or heard outside the courtroom. And and they provided candid testimony to the jury. And But the sad thing is the jury, they made a final report and it was very specific. And it named names of a lot of these corrupt senior officers and nothing happened. So besides those officers, these are men in this case, a few bad men who raised their right hand and swore to defend our constitution and you know, one of the implied tasks in that is that you will be a moral, ethical, and lawful, you know, leader in our armed services. But, but when you read what they said and what they did and how they knowingly betrayed people in this, per and, and not just those that were on the stand, but the entire apparatus, this court of inquiry, a rarely used procedure because it's uh it's unlike a court martial. You can, there's no rules of evidence in a court of inquiry. They did this after, you know, what happened to Joel Custer. They did this after the submarine that, uh, uh, you know, tossed over this boat in Pearl Harbor. Uh, it's, but it's very rarely used. And uh, because they, they can basically do a lot, it's much broader for the government prosecution to do almost anything they want. And, how they controlled information is those who are military professionals that are listening and on this show, we realize that what the doctrinal definition for information operations is. And we understand that when approved, you can do that against your enemies. And you can also do psychological operations against your enemies when it's approved by the proper authorities. You cannot do that against your own forces. It's illegal. And you cannot do it against the American people. That is also illegal. And 
what went on in that courtroom, uh, I don't believe was authorized, maybe a wink and a nod from somebody that you can do this, especially you see in this case, it's so rare to have 45 criminal investigators, four prosecuting attorneys. That type of dogpiling did not happen within Marine investigations in Haditha or Hamdaniya or any other cases in the 20 years that we were in combat. Uh, why they use such overwhelming force against seven to include what went on in that courtroom of escort continually having a lieutenant colonel. <laughs> Most of these people on this here have been in some form or fashion, some military justice procedure where you realize if it's a court, if it's a court and there's media there, you may have, you may, may not, you may have a handler for those media. Maybe that's a, an NCO or a young officer, but to fly up a lieutenant colonel from Tampa, Florida for three and a half weeks, uh, there's probably a, a good reason why that lieutenant colonel was the handler and kept escorting these guys out at the direction of the legal advisor, Colonel Lecce, um, because they don't really have a judge. You had this legal advisor, uh, but some of those tactics, uh, that's why this book is very important. We have a case going on right now with three Marines from the Marine Special Operations Command, the same command I was in, also there in North Carolina, these three. It's in, currently in progress. Uh, these Marines were attacked and uh, they defended themselves with a minimum amount of force. They're all three right now charged with homicide. Uh, I urge your listeners to look at the... Uh, the, the case of the MARSOC 3 and what's going on, uh, they're going for here in June 24th, they have a, a unlawful command influence uh, hearing going on in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And uh, you'll, you'll see what happened last November where a Marine Colonel Staff Judge Advocate came down from the Pentagon. This is, this is, <laughs> so he went down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where there's eight Marine defense attorneys who've all signed affidavits. These are eight young officers, lawyers in the Marine Corps, signed affidavits that a Marine Corps, most young officers won't break ranks. If a, if a colonel comes down, you know, and he's a Marine lawyer from headquarters Marine Corps and states that, hey, if you defend these guys, your fitness reports by your next hire, that can protect you, but you won't be totally protected because the colonel lawyer who's on the promotion board will know who you are. So it conveys this threat. And, you know, these defense attorneys who are defending these, some of them were defending the, the MARSOC 3, you know, who have all had to now uh, jettison their attorneys, which completely weakens their case as they're going into a court martial. Uh, read about this case and think for yourself, is this military justice? Have we shown ourselves, like the gentleman on the cover of the of the book. One of those gentlemen is General Amos, who's the Commandant of the Marine Corps. And he said to the convening authority, this is Lieutenant General at the time, he was later promoted four-star General, Waldhauser. Uh, but he said, I want those Marines crushed. He was speaking to Lieutenant General Waldhauser, who was the convening authority for those Marines, third battalion, second Marines who had urinated on the Taliban, the dead Taliban, most people are familiar with this case, but uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, every American deserves the presumption of innocence and their due day, their their day in court. And for a convenient authority, is the civilian court is not the same, uh, where a convenient authority has so much control. Like in Marsoc right now, Major General Charlinger, who's the commanding general of Marsoc, he has he's the senior person in. Marine Special Operations Command. So the jury will be appointed from within the Marine Special Operations Command. And their, their promotions, their next assignment, their, their retention is affected by the convening authority. Uh, that's not the case in the civilian world where a judge or any higher legal authority has that type of control over the jury. Uh, it's it's uninfluenced, but in the military it is. And um, so we, we have some issues 
And this book shows that are those who are currently and will serve those sons and daughters of America, are they receiving fair, impartial, and unbiased uh, military justice? I would submit no. I would submit read the, the facts of what happened, the sworn statements. There's a lot of fans out there that do not like Fred Gallum, that think that I'm this person that was very heavy-handed in battle, uh, who is super aggressive, um, and they just don't like me. And I never, you know, I just moved to California from Hawaii, so there is no way I have any intention of ever having political office. I'm not here for a popularity contest or a campaign. I'm here to tell you what happened in this case and what I have recently seen and that's what I was paid in the military, trained as a reconnaissance officer to see what is on a battlefield and what is not on a battlefield and report it to you. And that is what has happened in this book, A Few Bad Men, is whether you like me or not, it's not going to hurt my feelings. I just want you to know what happened in 2007 and 2008 and you know the follow-on aftermath of uh, what happened to these A Few Good Men in uh in our marsoc task force yeah i think drew's got a great question here about you know with this being a demoralizing process how did it affect your relationship with your team as you guys went through this a very good question so is it is a leader not just someone that has that uh title is a is a leader you you're responsible, in my opinion, how I was trained cradle to grave. And I've had a lot of great military leaders since I was a young second lieutenant and even before show like when you are responsible for them, every fiber in your body, every cell that you have inside your being needs to be focused on how you take care of that, that force, those, those Marines. And actually, there's a benefit to that, even though you go through that adversity in that dark valley in the end because you're constantly thinking uh you know to see the unseen and expect and plan and uh i think that mental engagement and that inner spirit to continue to fight helps that leader in the long run but but our marines physiologically started to break down so there were seven of us that were originally accused and then two of us that were named as parties and co-defendants in this war crimes trial that other party, he's been able, they've all been able to survive and thrive, but he ended up getting cancer and a very horrible cancer. He had to have surgery, radiation treatment, <clears throat> his senior enlisted leader. And these, these are force recon Marines. These are not well-nourished warriors that are just have bad diets and out of shape. These are people at the peak of their physical fitness, but he ended up senior enlisted leader getting diabetes so these types of things, when they get into your mind, uh, that can metastasize different cells in your body. And I'm not a doctor. I know how to patch somebody up that's been shot, but I, I'm not some medical researcher that uh, can give you a thorough explanation and facts. But, but I can tell you what happened to our guys and what happened to their marriages. Um, this just leveling these types of accusations of a capital offense of mass murder something that every religion and every nation on this globe condemn uh that in and alone itself is able to uh, not just demoralize you but that is what has plagued and has led to the ptsd for these these marines in this case it's not i will tell you Every single one of these men was trained infinitely as best as we possibly can for what we were to expect in battle against that enemy. And there were some things that were new, such as this information warfare that happened to us and how it happened so fast. That was new, but that was manageable. But the betrayal by your own military to come after you so viciously, that was unexpected. And that is what to this day, uh, a lot of our Marines were just like, hey, I, their concern is that somebody from NCS will come in, and as they've stated, come and try to arrest them and lock them up because 
you know, how aggressively, I mean, one of these Marines, the, the driver in the vehicle that was blown up, the Humvee that was blown up, he legally naturalized and became an American citizen. And here, the government draft, they manufactured a statement for him that was different than the statement they signed in Afghanistan. But, you know, now he, he got kicked out of Afghanistan. He gets repeatedly threatened, as did another, uh, you know, Marine of Latino descent. He gets repeatedly harassed and coerced into signing the statement at the threat of having his mother deported, something that's illegal. And, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I'm sure the 14th Amendment was probably burned into his brain that American citizen cannot have their citizenship, whether they're native born or nationalized, revoked. Uh, but, you know, so he's threatened to make this decision between his blood family and his brothers in arms. And he signed their statement and that came out on the stand. But guess what? You're not going to read that anywhere online because the media wasn't in there, but you're going to read it in a few bad men. Be, sorry, I don't want to spoil the whole thing because that's what he said on the stand. And that's the facts. And he admitted, you know, that he signed this statement because, you know, he was under duress. That should never, that type the, when the government does that, and I don't think that these military lawyers, these majors, and these aren't ex, inexperienced, fresh-faced lieutenants, lawyers, these are majors. Somebody, in my opinion, I can't prove this, they probably aren't out there freelancing these types of illegal acts. They're probably somewhere, somebody, who knows, Lieutenant General Mattis was a convening authority at that time. Some there had to have been a wink and a nod for for majors to go that far, but guess what happened to them? <laughs> You're right, they got promoted, and you read the back of the book and you see all these guys, just like the front of the book, the forward key thing to. I mean, there was a jury member, Steve Morgan, great American, you know, right behind home plate, saw everything, heard everything in that courtroom, and calls it like he sees it. Read his forward. And, you know, you can Google search Steve Morgan and listen to some of his stuff online, read what he said. Uh, he's been adamant in defending us. But as he is, I'll quote him, you know, this was a perfect storm of bad officers and not just Air Force and Army officers, but Marine officers. So this was a joint. And people think like the, the prosecution's closing statement was the whole world's against Fred Yowie. No, but just read the facts and understand what was said in that courtroom. I didn't, nobody had a gun to their head. This is what they said voluntarily under oath after swearing in on the stand. Uh, and, and then ask yourself, can this happen again? And, and read about the MARSOC three and how they were, we had a gag order against us that we couldn't talk to the press. And they attempted to put a gag order on the MARSOC three. And now, I mean, the government's case is very weak against the MARSOC 3. It's been going on for three and a half years. So there's demoralization for three and a half years. The legal bills for a capital offense case for three and a half years. You think, you know, gunnery sergeants, the equivalent of like a Navy chief or Army sergeant first class, you think they got the pocketbook to continue to dole out for lawyers for three and a half years? You think that affects their family's quality of life, their mindset, when two of these three were... I mean, they were selected for promotion for three and a half years. That's just been put on hold. Uh, is that the way we need to be treating our special operators? And is that going to give us an advantage right now? Like I said at the beginning, we are going to get drawn into a war with the Chinese Communist Party in the Straits of Taiwan, whether we want to or not. This is coming and we better have a force that is effective and has high morale. And I will say right now, having just left six weeks ago, the Marines in the Pacific, we, we've got some issues, some large issues, not micro, when great Marine officers in droves, almost to the Marine, are wanting to get out as fast as they can. This, these are indications that we need to you know, pay attention to and we need to take action on.
Well, I know you're about out of time. Do you have time for a couple more questions or you got to go? One more. And I really enjoy this. I'd love one more question. Uh, I work for a guy who's, he's looking up into space and I, I, right. <laughs> I, I got well, maybe let's there. close with, uh, with, Mike's then because you talk about accountability. I think Mike wants to know, is there going to be a congressional inquiry or just, I guess what I think broader, what should we all be doing as Americans to create accountability around this? Great, great question. Um, 2017, God rest his soul, the late Congressman Walter Beeman Jones from uh, the second district in North Carolina. He was the district representative for the district where Camp Lejeune where we were based at is uh, is assigned to the Marine Special Operations Command. He fought literally, and this is, I'm not mixing my words, he fought till the day he died to clear our name. And you'll see if you go web search, H period, RES period 21 in the 115th Congress, he sponsored this. It had bipartisan as well as bicameral support with all four U.S. senators from Kansas and Missouri at the time. Uh, so this this had the support and the the purpose of House Resolution 21 was to have the comment on the Marine Corps make an official statement stating that the Marines of Marine Special Operations Company Foxtrot were not at fault and ambush on on 4 March 2007. So let me uh, capture some things real quick as I wrap up here. The Court of Inquiry, longest trial in Marine Corps history, didn't use any legal terms when it finished. They didn't say in any legal terms, and those of you who've been in the military understand, legal term is innocent, guilty, dismissed. They waited four months on a Friday night of Memorial Day weekend. They said it to only Estes Thompson, the Associated Press. And most of you know on a four day, there's a few four day weekends, the Pentagon is reduced down to a smaller staff. Uh, one of them is Memorial Day. And then you come back from that, it's a known tactic. There's very few government holidays through the spring. They waited four months and they dumped it on Memorial Day, Friday night. Um, you come back to work on Wednesday, the stock market, global events has changed, this is old news. And that's what happened. But the media, what they captured is the Marine Corps said that we acted appropriately according to rules of engagements and tactics, techniques and procedure for a complex ambush. So what they didn't say is that we were innocent. And the press said, these narratives until the even the day I retired and I was in Kansas City, they said Fred Galvin retired. This was in the Marine Corps Times, and he was responsible for killing 19 and wounding 50. Because the Marine, when you say acted appropriately, what does that mean? That's something you use in like a after action or a debrief. Those milly mouth words don't mean anything to legal professionals and to the court, to the media. There, it sends mixed signals. And so what you can do is uh, Congressman Louis Gomer from uh, Texas, he is a, he's the chairman of the Justice for Warriors Caucus. He has a, an army, a former army soldier, uh, Derek Miller, who has, uh, was imprisoned in Fort Leavenworth for a, an act in uh, Afghanistan. He has been uh, exonerated and released. He is the military legislative assistant for uh, Congressman Gomer. And there is a Justice for Warriors Caucus. And we ask that uh, concerned Americans address, you know, they can go on www.congress.gov backslash contact, or maybe it's connect, and contact your member of Congress and state, after reading a few bad men, understand the facts, understand this cannot happen again, to other sons and daughters of America who are serving our country or who will serve. But unfortunately it will, and it takes concerned Americans to engage their elected officials and say, this has to stop. And I have to get on the road myself. Thank you all gentlemen. No, it was uh, great to spend time with you. Appreciate you having the courage to write the book and tell your story and, uh, uh, just keep telling your story and, and hopefully folks order a few bad men and learn about what you've been through and really appreciate you, uh, your bravery and your persistence and in, in getting this message out there. Uh, one, one final comment and it's a shameless plug, but it's what I'm sensing from uh, sales. A lot of people 
these days and I got you. They don't, a lot of people don't read books. That's just a fact in this day and age. Uh, a lot of us do. And a lot of us who were, you know, grunts just learned to walk upright. We like a book because it has a map and it has pictures and we can color those pictures. It's easy for us to understand, but a lot of the younger generation, you can get the audible. It's a uh, very well narrated by Victor Bavine and, uh, you can get that instantly. So if some people may not have the best patience, you can get the Audible, uh, go online right now, either directly through Audible or Amazon, purchase it. You don't have to wait for it and you can listen to it, download it, and uh, you will not be disappointed. You'll, I have not heard anybody, the reviews are out there. Uh, it's an important story in America's military history. Uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, I believe it's important and please have uh, this information shared with the largest audience. We can't afford to have our military have be plagued by these types of morale issues. Well, thanks for all you're doing. Appreciate it. appreciate your service and, um, and have a great weekend. It's great spending time with you. Likewise, Dylan. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hope these lessons from Major Fred Galvin increased your awareness of the challenges our troops face, not just from the enemies of our nation, but sometimes within their own leadership. It's up to us as Americans to hold our military leadership accountable for readiness, morale, and for upholding the foundational principles of our Constitution as we hold the torch of freedom as a beacon of hope for others around the world. You can learn more about Major Galvin's story by ordering a few bad men. Now let's get out there and be courageous, be strong, never give up. I'll see you soon.